There we go. Uh, Hebrews, we are in chapter 12. And we are looking at verses 5 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. This is what God's Word says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Thus ends our reading of God's living and active word. May all who hear it obtain the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes from the discipline of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard questions like this? How can a loving God allow suffering in this world? If God was truly good, he would have put an end to our pain and our misery long ago, wouldn't he have not? I mean, the fact that, 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 that he doesn't do anything proves that either he, he doesn't really care or that he doesn't really exist. And these are the type of arguments that you'll hear from those struggling with the question of what is known as theodicy. What is theodicy? Theodicy is the explanation or the, or the vindication of why a perfectly good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God permits evil. Theodicy is, is the theologian's attempt to reconcile these seemingly inconsistent realities. And yet when it comes to theodicy, most of the arguments against God... Those questions I just asked, they, they come from the atheists of our world, do they not? Those who do not believe that God exists in the first place. But what happens when the arguments start coming from inside the church? How are we to respond when, when, when questions are coming from those who do believe? When, when you get questions such as this, how can God, this, this one who has chosen us and forgiven us, now allow us to suffer such things? How, how can he let his children go through such pain? Doesn't this contradict the, the gospel message? Didn't Jesus suffer so that we wouldn't have to? If God has, has truly rescued us, then why is life so hard? Where is the victory that is promised? 
These are not easy questions. But hopefully, when we look at our text today, some of them will be answered. Now, now if you remember back in chapter 10, our, our author, he, he spoke of the different trials and, and tribulations that the, the church to whom he was writing to, that, that they had to go through. The, these different struggles that they had because they were being persecuted for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Look, look at Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The recipients of this letter, this, this letter to the Hebrews, they went through some difficult, difficult times in the past. And now they were going through those same things, those same tribulations once again. And it could have been very, very easy for them to start questioning God's goodness. To, to, to question the, the plan that he had for them. And yet, if you recall, our, our author believed that this church was made of firmer stuff. That they would hold firm to what they knew to be true. Look, look at the last verse of that same chapter. Look at verse 39 of chapter 10. This is what our author says of this church. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, our author, he was confident that, that this church would not shrink back because they had been given faith by God himself. And that led us into chapter 11, the great hall of faith, right? Where we saw all the examples of the people of old, those who chose to live by faith, even though life had thrown them so many hurdles. They, they, they endured because they trusted in in the unseen God, and believed in his promises. And then if you remember from last week, we, we, we talked about the keys to that type of endurance, right? The, the things that we must do in order to run the race that is the Christian life. We, we spoke of our need to, to lay aside those things that weigh us down, and along with the sin, our own sin, which clings so closely. And we discovered that the, the Christian life is a life of endurance. It isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. And so we need to pace ourselves using patience and, and stamina as we wait upon the Lord. And through all of this, we must keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, the one who, who sets the pace for us, teaching us how to run so that we can finish well. These are the things that we must be doing as we live by faith. But now today, we're, we're not going to speak so much about what we should do. Rather, we're going to be focusing on what we must think. How we must train our minds in order to understand the reality of what God is doing, what he is doing in our lives when we choose to live by faith. 
In other words, we must gain a godly perspective. Now remember, this, this church to whom our author was writing, they, they were Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And for years, they had been suffering under persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so what our author wants his readers to understand is that the persecution that they were now going through was actually for their good. For it was a form of discipline. And it was God's way of producing holiness within them. Now before we get into the text, before we take a step further, I think it is imperative that we define this word discipline. For, for this is a word that our author uses nine times in our passage today. He uses it either in his verb form or his noun form. And so if we don't define this correctly, we're, we're going to err when we come to the meaning of the text. So let's define this word, discipline. In the Greek, our author actually uses three different words. He uses the words paideia, Paiduo and paidutes. And, and so paidea, that's, that's the noun form. And it means the rearing of the child, the rearing of a child, or the training of a child, uh, the discipline of a child. Paiduo is a verb form, and it means to it means to train a child. And so it, it's 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 the verb form of it. It's to chasten, to correct. And finally, we see this word, uh, paidutes, uh, one time in verse 9. And it's when our author speaks of our earthly fathers who have disciplined us in the past. And, and so this word means a teacher or a corrector or, or one who disciplines a child. Now, what we should notice about all these definitions is that it's referring to children, right? To the discipline of children. And what our author particularly has in mind is the relationship between a father and a son. That's what he's getting at. The other thing we should notice is that this word about discipline is used in the broad sense. And so this isn't just about corrective punishment. You see, what we, what we tend to do when we think of the word discipline we, is we tend to think of the, the word in the negative sense, right? That, that discipline only happens when a child is doing something wrong. But discipline can be achieved even when a child is on, on his best behavior. For it can be a positive thing as well. For its basic meaning is the training of a child, Right? Think of a young boy who's trying to learn how to read. You know, before he can truly read, what does he need to do first? He needs to first learn the discipline of the alphabet, right? Before he can say, before he can read a word like phenomenal, he needs to learn the different sounds that these letters and letter combinations can actually make. And yet for many children, learning how to read is not always a fun task, right? And yet we find it necessary. We, we find it needed in order for them to function in our world today. 
And, that, and this is why they need discipline. Not because they did something wrong, but because they need to grow. And yet, in the same breath, there's still times when dis- discipline takes on that negative sense, right? When, when there's need to be corrected, when wrong behavior happens. And, and so punishment is kind of the word we should be using when we speak of corrective discipline. And so as we, as we look at this word discipline in our passage today, we need to keep in mind all of its aspects. Well, with that being said, let's, let's look at the text. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here we see our author quoting a proverb. This is Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And this proverb was written by King Solomon to his son. And what does Solomon speak of? He speaks of the discipline of the Lord. And there are two things that that, that Solomon is saying to his son. One, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, do not ignore God when you are being trained by him. And two, do not be weary when reproved by him. That is, do not be downcast. Do not be sorrowful when God is correcting you. And so we see two types of attitude, two types of of thinking that Solomon would like his son to avoid. And those are the attitudes of disregard and discouragement. Let's let's consider those two things for a moment. First, disregard. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been given advice that you didn't listen to? Yeah, I... Sounds like all of us, right? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe you just thought that that person just didn't know what he was talking about, right? Or perhaps you had already made up your mind and you weren't willing to listen. In my own life, there have been many times where I've disregarded the advice of other people. And sometimes my disregard was a good thing because it was simply bad advice. But other times, my disregard was not so good. Because those who spoke, spoke from experience, and yet I was too proud to change my mind. And yet, when the instruction comes from God himself, when it it comes from the one who is all-knowing and all-wise, what should we do? We should perk up our ears and listen, should we not? For, for God possesses a fatherly wisdom that goes beyond what our limited minds can, can handle. It, it, and it's, honestly, it is pure pride on our part to think that we know better than him. And so in a sense, this, this first challenge from Solomon to his son is a call for humility. But what about Solomon's second challenge? What about becoming weary when being reproved? 
How, how do we avoid feeling downhearted when we are being corrected? Again, this can be a tough thing for us to do. Be, because it never feels good when you blow it, right? And then to have it pointed out to you, that just makes it that much worse. And yet the worst, the worst is when that reproof, when that correction comes from someone you hold dear, from, from someone you love deeply, because that person is the very one whom you do not want to disappoint. And yet when you do fail, you, you can fall in the, into this trap of, of beating yourself up, uh, of believing the, the lie that, that, that the one whom you disappointed no longer loves you. That God no longer loves you. How many of you have been down this road before? Where, where you, you're racked with guilt, with shame, because of a certain sin that, that seems to never go away. And you begin questioning your standing with God. Whether he's disappointed with you. Whether he has rejected you. Because you continue to hear his voice and you continue to hear his reproof. And so you begin to believe that God no longer loves you. And yet, according to Solomon, this is not the case. For what does he say? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I mean, think about what Solomon just said. If this is true, then the rebuke of the Lord is not an indication of God's displeasure of you. Rather, it is an indication of his acceptance of you, of his favor towards you. I know this seems backwards, but it's not. I mean, consider our own earthly relationships. How does a good father treat his son when his son has failed? Does he stop loving him? Of course not. Rather, he corrects his son for his own good so that his son will mature, so that his son will become wiser. This is how God feels about us. This should be our encouragement. Look at, look at what our author says next. Look, look at verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I mean, here we see the distinction, do we not? The, the distinction between those whom God considers his children and those whom he does not. And that, that distinction is whether or not they receive discipline. Brothers, sisters, the Lord does not discipline arbitrarily. Rather, he is selective in whom he chooses. 
He brings about his, his correction and his instruction to those he loves. He, he gives his training to those who are his legitimate children. Do you want to feel validated? Do you want to feel like you're God's child? Then you need to change your thinking. You, you need to begin viewing his discipline as if it's a big hug from heaven above. Listen, uh, oftentimes we, we, we interpret the, the difficulties in our own lives as, as evidence of, of God's inattention, as if he's this absent father who doesn't care, or, or even worse, that, that he's an abusive father, right? One who likes to see us suffer. But, but the truth of the matter is that it's the exact opposite. For these trials, these, these difficulties, they're actually a sign that you are a true child of God. A child who is prized, a child who is loved. I mean, think about it. The fact that God, the creator of the universe, would take the time to give you instruction means that you are significant to him. That he cares for you greatly. And that's because authentic discipline is relational in nature. It means that you are legitimately his child. In fact, if, if God chose not to discipline you, then you wouldn't be his. Let me, let me give you a scenario to, to help you understand. There's a boy in a, in a room, and, and he does something naughty, you know, something he shouldn't be doing. Not too bad, but he needs correction. And so an adult takes this boy into another room and proceeds to spank him. Now, now if I told you that this adult in the story was the child's father, you would think nothing of it. But, it, but if I told you that the adult was a stranger someone who did not know this child, wouldn't you consider that bizarre behavior? And the reason it would be bizarre is because instinctively we know it, it to be both a privilege and a responsibility for a father or for a mother to discipline their own children. And yet if a stranger does it, we might call 911, right? call the authorities on him. For, for he would have no right to discipline a child that wasn't his. Dear friends, when, when God disciplines you, you should see it as a confirmation that you are his. That you belong to him as his child. You're not illegitimate children. But you are his very own. And being his child, your response towards him should be that of respect. The same respect that, that a child would give to his earthly father. Look at, look at our next verse. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? When I was a child, I don't remember how old I was, but my sister and I, we got into big trouble once. 
we, we were having this pillow fight in the house, and we knocked over my mom's lamp. It broke, it shattered. Well, my dad saw this as an opportunity to train his children. And he had the perfect discipline. And, and so what he did is he began, he, he got out of his chainsaw and he started cutting down wood. Wood on our property. And uh, he had my sister and I haul it away. And so we worked for him hours upon hours until we paid off the cost of that lamp. And to this day, those moments of hauling that wood have stuck in my memory. For, for it both taught me, one, to, to play more cautiously, but it also taught me the value of hard work. And so I am indebted to my earthly father for this lesson, even though at the time I did not enjoy it. We should have a similar response when we undergo the Lord's discipline. It should build within us a deep respect for our Father in heaven. For while in the moment discipline doesn't seem pleasant, we need to understand that, that, that based on our earthly experiences with our earthly fathers, that what God is doing within us is showing us the tough love that we need. A love that will train us. A love that will mature us. And this is what, exactly what our author tells us in our last two verses. Look at verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we see there are benefits to our discipline. One, a share in God's holiness. And two, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's think about these two things, these two benefits. First, God's holiness. Why do we need God's holiness? The answer is simple. Because without His holiness, we cannot be in His presence. Consider what our author will later say in this letter. Look at, look at Hebrews 12, verse 29. This is how he describes God. For our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Listen, salvation through Jesus Christ isn't something that, that happens instantly and then you're done with it. No. Yes, you are justified when you believe. Yes, you are innocent in God's sight because of what Jesus did on the cross. But that is just the beginning. It's the beginning of God's saving work. For God's salvation is this lifelong process of Him sanctifying you through His Holy Spirit. 
as he molds you and, and, and shapes you into the image of his son. For you need to be holy if you're going to spend an eternity in his presence. And why is that? Because God is a consuming fire. And anything that is chaff, anything that is unholy will be burnt up. And yet when God makes you holy through his discipline, it will also produce a peaceful fruit of righteousness as well. For, for you will finally, you will have the confidence that you are God's child. That, 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 that God will never turn his back on you. And why will you have that confidence? Because he's making you holy, right? He's giving you his righteousness. And that which he makes holy, he does not throw away. That's why you can have true peace. Now before I finish, let's, let's consider once again the context of this letter and, and ask the question, why would our author speak of God's discipline to this church in the first place? The answer, because they were undergoing persecution in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what we read about back in chapter 10, that they were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some of them were imprisoned. Others had their property plundered. And this leads to another question. Because you may be thinking to yourself, well, aren't those things the results of sinful men? Are, are you now trying to tell us that ultimately God was responsible for their persecution? That's not what I'm saying. That's what God's word is telling you. Look, look at Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. It says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What God is saying here is that he is the only God and that he brings about all things, even the darkness, even the calamity. For, for if there was something that did not come from him, then he would cease to be God. Or how about Proverbs 16, verse 4? The Lord had, had made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Again, we, we, we see that all things come from God. And he has a purpose even for those things, even for those whose hearts are full of wickedness. They are his servants doing his bidding. Listen. If, if you have yet to understand that 
that God is sovereign, that, that he is in control of everything, even over the evil things that, that happen in this world, if you have yet to embrace this truth, then maybe your view of God needs to expand. You see, things don't just happen. They are orchestrated. They are purposed. And while we might not fully understand that purpose, God does. And God has purpose in his discipline. Even when he uses the hands of wicked men to carry it out. And the purpose of that discipline is for our good. That we may share in his holiness and have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Yes, even the, the persecution that the early church underwent was to produce holiness among God's people. Look, look at the book of James, chapter 1. Look at verses 2 through 4. This is what James said. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your face, faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, what James knew and what the author of Hebrews understands is that these sufferings that God brings our way are for our benefit. For what God is doing within us is purifying our hearts by producing right character. He is shaping us into the image of his son. But this leads to another question, does it not? For you may be now asking yourself, what about us? We are not under persecution, at least not like that first church felt. Does that mean that, that God doesn't view us as legitimate children? That he's not disciplining us? Of course not. Persecution isn't the only way that God disciplines his children. There are other trials that can challenge our faith. The loss of a loved one, hardship in work, a physical ailment. All these things can be God's way of training us and, and building us up. Think of the story of Job. who He experienced all three of those things at the same time. God used tragedy in this man's life to humble him. And to produce godly character within him. Even though he was already considered by God more righteous than anyone else around him. You see, God, he, he wasn't disappointed with Job. Rather, he loved him as a son. But you may now be asking, but doesn't everybody at one time or another go through such trials? Does that mean that we are all considered legitimate children of God? Not exactly. Yes, we, we all go through trials, but, but only those who have their faith tested are being truly disciplined. Though, for those who have no belief in the true God, 
They, they don't see these things as a test, but merely as happenstance, as the universe acting out or something. But for us who do believe, who know the good and all-powerful God, we, we are challenged in our faith when the trials come our way. And what this ultimately does is it grows us in our holiness. But then this leads to another question, right? So, so why must discipline be so difficult? Right? Couldn't God train us in a different way? I think that's a question that all children like to ask their parents, right? <laughs> yes, God could train us in a different way, and he does train us in a different way. And yet sometimes there are certain things that can only be learned through experience through hardship. And God chooses to, to use these things to discipline us in a way that no other type of training could possibly accomplish. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Listen, I, I, I know that there have been times in your life when you have been hurt. I know that there have been times in your life when, when the suffering seems like it is too much to bear. And yet, whatever the circumstances, whatever the struggles, God has purposed those things for your good. Because God has chosen to discipline those he loves. He is training you to take your eyes off the things of this world, to, to, to things that you, you want to put your hope in. And he's training you to focus your eyes upon him and the hope that he brings. And while it is painful in the moment, it will reap a harvest, which is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, discipline, it has a long view in mind. It, it sees the end game, which, which is a people made holy and spending an eternity with their Father in heaven. It is God sanctifying his people so that they will become true citizens of heaven. And we have to look no further than Jesus Christ to see the ultimate example of someone who had that end game in mind. Let's jump backwards just one moment. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 3. It says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, Christ was thinking about you. He was thinking about your holiness when he died for your sins. He, he picked up his cross and endured the pain because it is he who wants to spend eternity with you. That's how much he loves you. Bottom line is this. Our perspective needs to change. We need to, we need to start seeing the goodness of God and his acceptance of us through the very trials that he brings our way. 
We need to trust in this God, even when it hurts, knowing that the discipline of the Lord comes only to those whom he loves. Let us pray. Father, we confess that all too often we, we do take a negative view to your discipline. We, we don't see the goodness that can come from it, nor do we see it as a sign of your acceptance of us as your children. And so we ask that, that you would help us to repent. Help us to change our minds and begin to take that long view. The long view that your son took when he went to the cross and died for our sins. Help us to see the benefits of being made holy so that we may rejoice in our sufferings. We can only do this by the strength of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would come to our aid in our moments of weakness. We ask that you would give us that peaceful fruit of your righteousness. You are a good, good Father to us. Let that truth enter deep within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.